Good afternoon. It's Friday the 25th of September 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Pat Mike Robinson. Joining me today in the studio, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the program, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Right. So, well, we're getting start off with the uh, news from yesterday. Uh, Patrick Valance, according to The Telegraph, has £600,000 shareholding in the firm contracted to develop vaccines. Well, in a firm contracted to develop vaccines. So this is GlaxoSmithKline. One of the big uh, vaccine providers uh, working with the government uh, and also working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, so basically, Patrick Valance in the past uh, has already cashed in more than apparently five million pounds worth of shares from vaccine mogul uh, GSK, GlaxoSmithKline. We put the logo there. Uh, only fitting and everywhere Sir Patrick goes, that logo should follow, follow him because yeah. that's exactly who he's representing. But let's look at some of the details of this uh, bombshell report really uh, by the Telegraph here. So they're saying, this is from a senior Tory MP who spoke to the Telegraph, the policy of this government is to try to suppress COVID-19 at every opportunity until we get a vaccine. So he's really hinting at the conflict of interest here. But he goes on, he says, that makes this but more likely that a vaccine will be prioritized by the government. Uh, and he happens to be holding shares in one of the leading companies that are developing it. So he's basically saying here that uh, this is a potential conflict of interest. Some might say it's more than potential, Mike, that it is actually uh, a conflict of interest. Uh, but they, uh, go, the report goes on uh, just to detail here. If uh, he is making decisions on vaccines and advising the government on them, then he either needs to divest himself of the shares or make a declaration every time he touches on the subject. And uh, again, Pat Sir Patrick is the chief scientific advisor to the government. And uh, this uh, source goes on to say, in the Commons, every time MPs raise an issue in which there is a registered interest, they have to declare it every time he is, Sir Patrick, is on TV talking about vaccines or not um, on TV, he should put it on the table. So I don't think it's uh, any more clear than that in terms of the case, Mike. Uh, well, it's clearly a conflict of interest. The government, however, said, said uh, it's not a conflict of interest because he's not making commercial decisions on about the vaccine or a potential vaccine. Uh, but of course, what he's doing is he is a market maker. He is producing a market for a vaccine which doesn't exist at the moment. There is no demand for the vaccine other than the, the government's decision to create a demand for that vaccine by uh, through their policy. And that policy is being made by this man, or at least he is contributing to making that policy. So it's a clear conflict of interest, no matter what the government says. I, I think it's very disingenuous of them to even make that statement. Could they have made that statement like 20 or 30 years ago? Oh, they, they would have tried, but I uh, suspect they would have had quite a bit more criticism than they have they for making have, it. They would have been torn to pieces by the press probably, but the rules have changed. Uh, in 2020 and with these, the succession of these last governments that become more and more corporatized. So conflicts of interest don't seem to exist. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, Mike, as you pointed out, Sir Patrick Valance, Chris Whitty, these two gentlemen that are deeply, deeply ensconced in the pharmaceutical industry for their whole careers, okay, they are integral in making decisions that are going to determine government policy on everything from lockdowns from uh, tr uh, test and trace, 
and all the way to the rollout of vaccines. So to say that there there is no conflict of interest, I just don't buy that. Uh, indeed, but now of course the conflicts of interest in general go much broader than this because as we know, uh, Imperial College, for example, absolutely key to pushing forward with this lockdown policy and key to pushing forward with this uh, with the drive towards vaccines as well, uh, receives a significant amount of money from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So they also have a vested interest in pushing forward with the vaccine policy, uh, as opposed to any other type of approach to this problem. Um, so everywhere we look, you know, admittedly, Imperial College not with it operating within the government, whereas Patrick Valance is. Uh, but nonetheless, they have been helping to guide this policy from the beginning. Advising uh, the government. With absolute vested interests in doing so. And we don't even, we're only talking about the Wellcome Trust and some of these other organizations that are absolutely integral in this whole operation mm -hmm. with the government and who have funding from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation from the pharmaceutical industry directly. So let's look at these uh, two gentlemen here. This was at their press conference, Mike. Again, you see the GSK logo there with Sir Patrick. Uh, I think Patrick Valance isn't chuckling anymore. They were chuckling a bit on Monday, but not anymore. More on the chuckling in a second. But so, so just to reiterate, Sir Patrick Valance, chief scientific officer, former head of GlaxoSmithKline Research, major shareholder in GSK, and Chris Whitty, chief medical officer, already in the pocket after being awarded 40 million, 31 million. Uh, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Admittedly, this was for a research project. It wasn't money directly put into the bank account of Chris Whitty. Uh, well, well, indirectly, but he still got a salary as a result of that. Of that uh, a major beneficiary. Yeah, absolutely. And also an interim board member, former, we're not sure or not, but uh, apparently interim, former at least interim board member of CEPI. This is uh, the vaccine coalition funded by Gates as well. So again, Chris Whitty is right at the hub of the uh, big pharma transnational pharmaceutical uh, vaccine rollout with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. So no questions there in terms of, you know, so they're saying, please, you need to take our vaccine when it comes out in the spring. And this was really the, the subtext of, of the whole presentation that they gave on Monday, as well as talking about various pharmaceutical products like that are on the market, you know, again, I don't know if they were just selling product or uh, if they were, you know, advising the public on public health. It's very difficult to, mm. to see. But it doesn't end there, Mike. Uh, we've also have the head of the government's COVID-19 vaccine task force. This is Kate Bingham. Uh, she's also very involved in the industry on the board of the DDF Investment Committee. This is a of a committee that's dealing with investment and the pharmaceutical industry created by six of the biggest firms, including GSK, Eli Lilly, Pfizer, and others there. So everywhere we look in terms of government, Mike, we see all of these people that have very tight relationships with the pharmaceutical industries mm -hmm. who are going to benefit massively if there's some kind of massive rollout pushed by governments globally for a COVID-19 vaccine. And no one's asking the question, uh, why do we need a universal COVID-19 vaccine when COVID-19, it let more and more seems to not pose the threat that it was sold to the public as last spring. Uh, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Patrick, but it seems to me that if you've got uh, two of the key advisors to government, two of the key drivers, and we'll, we'll look at a photograph a little later that suggests that Chris Whitty is more than just a driver of, of this policy. Uh, if those two uh, key voices 
have got vested interests in pursuing a particular policy direction, um, which it could be shown uh, perhaps resulted in unnecessary deaths. I think there's personal liability there. They've got uh, uh, questions to answer and perhaps it requires a criminal investigation at that point. It, absolutely, as, as, as well if there's a conflict of interest. Uh, that's on top as yes. well. Lockdown policies, we could have, make an argument of what you just said yes. in terms of lockdown deaths. But what is this, what, what's, the, what's the main point here? All of the conversation from government, from the scientific advisors to the government is all about vaccines. The only way we can achieve herd immunity is through a vaccine. Mm. So not naturally, but synthetically through this product that the industries that they represent the interest they represent is going to provide. And this isn't actually uh, what the science is actually saying right now. Let's look at the conversation on immunity. We're talking specifically about T cells. You've covered this many times before, but I think it's worth covering again and to keep talking about this in terms of T cell immunity. What, what, are, what do we know about T cells right now? Well, we know that they're more important actually than antibodies, according to multiple peer-reviewed papers, many of them that you've shown on this program in past episodes. We'll show you another one in a minute. And that's on the basis that they provide long-term uh, immunity as opposed to antibodies, which appear for a, a particular period of time and then disappear once the infection's gone. Sure, after months or something yes. like this. So yes, T cells actually more important than antibodies, which is, that totally defies the whole conversation that this crisis led off with mm -hmm. last uh, winter because antibodies are directly associated with vaccines. Mm -hmm. That's why. So this this seems to me, Mike, why the media and the government want to keep this conversation into the antibody and vaccine conversation because they don't want you to talk about the larger immunity picture, which is the adaptive immunity systems that everybody has as well. Absolutely. And that young people have so, so well. So cross immunity you're talking about derived from prior coronaviruses. So we're, they're, they're finding that people have immunity to COVID uh, without ever having caught COVID. So cross immunity from previous coronaviruses. So again, no need for a vaccine uh, if you had had exposure to a previous coronavirus. And so this is why children uh, most likely are less affected by COVID-19 because of T-cell immunity. And also it's why fewer people are susceptible to COVID-19. So they're talking about 90% susceptibles out there in the public, these big numbers that we should be afraid of. And that's why we need a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Like we can't get back to normal without a vaccine. But actually what we're finding here with T-cells, Mike, is uh, yeah, we probably are at herd immunity right now because of T-cell immunity is, is one of the things, as well as antibody immunity uh, too. So let's look at uh, one of those papers here. Uh, and this is, this is from Research Square. So SARS-CoV-2 T-cell um, epitopes uh, define uh, heterologous uh, COVID-19-induced T-cell recognition. My scientific pronunciation might be off, but th <laughs> that's the basic thrust of this paper is T-cell immunity uh, to COVID-19 is very effective. Mm. So now moving on, we have our health secretary here, uh, Minister for Health, Matt Hancock, MP. Our strategy is straightforward. We must act to suppress this virus while protecting our economy and education mm. by shutting down the economy and, sh 
and making closing the schools, closing schools and quarantining children until a vaccine or mass testing is ready. So everywhere we look, the statements, Mike, from the government, it's all about this is all for the vaccine. Oh, it always has been about the vaccine. And we knew that we, we, we suspected that, but now they're saying it. So this is the big difference this week is the government is actually saying this now. Boris Johnson's admitted it. Uh, as has Matt Hancock. Yes. So this this is a sea change, I think. Now, c contrast this conversation we're seeing in the UK with the health secretary, uh, with the science advisors, Valance and Witty. Okay, they're ignoring the whole issue of T cells. They're it's all about vaccines. We can't get back to normal. Nothing can go back to normal. The economy, nothing. You can't have your life back. You can't meet your friends without our vaccine, which is coming in six months. So we need to lock lockdown or have a type of lockdown scenarios for six months. That's the UK conversation. Now a different conversation is happening in the United States. Let's take a look at this video. Uh, uh, just before we do, is this, is this a change in uh, the conversation in the United States? This is a 180 degree change from from anything we have heard previously from uh, the, the heads of scientific uh, advisories and so forth in the United States. So uh, this is the he one of the heads of the U U.S. Coronavirus Task Force. This is Dr. Scott Atlas. And listen closely to what he's saying. And it's, to me, very significant that he said this. Listen. Dr. Redfield today said that more than 90% of the population remains susceptible to coronavirus. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think that Dr. Redfield uh, misstated something there. And the reason I'm going to answer your question if you let me finish. Uh, the, the data on susceptible that he was talking about was his uh, surveillance data that showed that roughly 9% of the country has antibodies. But when you look at the CDC data state by state, much of that data is old. Some of it goes back to March or April before many of these states had the cases. That's point number one. Point number two is that the immunity to the infection is not solely determined by the percent of people who have antibodies. If you look at the research, and there's been about 24 papers at least on the immunity from T cells, that's a different type of immunity than antibodies. And without being boring, the reality is that according to the papers from Sweden, Singapore, and elsewhere, there is cross immunity, highly likely, from other infections. And there is also T-cell immunity. And the combination of those makes the antibodies a small fraction of the people that have immunity. So the answer is no, it is not 90% of people that are susceptible to the infection. So I guess my question is, for I'm not a doctor, I defer to your expertise on this and to his, but so Americans hear one thing from the CDC director and another thing from you. Who are we to, to believe? You're supposed to believe the science, and I'm telling you the science. He's not that's telling it. us science. I'm telling you the science, and that's the answer. And if you want to look up all the data, you're free to. You can also talk to the following epidemiologists. I guess, why is he still going out before Congress and speaking if you say he's misstated today and the yeah. president said he misstated last time? Americans are looking for the best information right now. Yeah, and I'm giving you the best information, and it's confirmed by people like Martin Koldorf, who's a Harvard epidemiologist at Harvard so Medical School. Let me finish, please. please. Jay Bhattacharya and Johnny Anides, both epidemiologists at Stanford, uh, Professor Gupta, University of Oxford. These are people who know the latest data on the immunology and what's happening, and I just recited it to you. They really don't like it whenever uh, somebody is giving them information that doesn't fit with 
their narrative. Did I'm talking how, about the, the, the journalists here. The press. Did you yes. see how fast they jumped on him? Yes. He was about to name the, the, the top epidemiologists in the country and a British epidemiologist, Dr. Sunetra Gupta. Uh, Gupta from Oxford University, mm -hmm. uh, someone who's really shut out of the mainstream media conversation for the most part uh, in the UK. And he's naming them uh, in front of the White House press corps. And they're trying to shut him down. So I, that's significant, Mike. That's a very different conversation. You won't hear that from Anthony Fauci. And again, a lot of people believe this is why Anthony Fauci has been slightly sidelined recently. I think the administration is starting to realize that they have been had uh, in the early stages of this. That this threat, this crisis has really been pumped up by bad information. Mm -hmm. We'll see more uh, verification of whether this is the case in the coming weeks and months. Um, so many, many people tweeting uh, this image around of uh, Chris Whitty, uh, really uh, red-faced and apparently banging the table and uh, Boris Johnson looking very sheepish uh, on the other side of the table. Uh, Matt Hancock, arms folded, uh, trying to get away as quickly as possible, it looks like. And it's not... Uh, so obviously it's difficult to know exactly what's going on in a still like this, uh, but what are your thoughts? Well, just imagine, Mike, the scene you see here. Imagine this, turn back the clock, and imagine they're all at boarding school, okay? Just just, just turn the clock back, and all of these characters are at boarding school. You know kind of what the conversation's like, and you also know the pecking order. And so this, this uh, go back to the image, yeah. just this idea that Chris Whitty is this sheepish, kind of, you know, um, nondescript uh, bureaucrat, you know, who's neutral, okay? This image really blows out of the water. You can see he has a, a bad temper. Uh, he is in, trying to intimidate, or it looks like he's really upset about something. So you think about who his interests are, who he represents. He represents, for the most part, the pharmaceutical industry, okay? His whole career and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So there must be an agenda item or something that is not going his way. Uh, and he is basically shouting down. You can see Boris Johnson's a bit afraid, seems to be taken back. Matt Hancock is over there in the corner, uh, cowering in the corner uh, there. And uh, Dominic Cummings is just sitting back saying, oh, I think you've upset him. <laughs> so it's an interesting scene, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, um, I think maybe we'll be a little bit sarcastic for a second. Good news, Patrick, because the NHS app has been released. Uh, and uh, it's a vital part of the fight against coronavirus, apparently. Um, and, well, the government, of course, had to drop their idea of a centralized uh, server which uh, collected all this data, uh, and they've had to go with the infrastructure that Apple and Google have provided instead, which, of course, doesn't allow the government to collect the same amount of data that they were hoping to. It's been very disappointing for them, but it's going to do all kinds of useful things. Uh, so let's just have a look and see uh, what it's going to do. First of all, uh, it will uh, provide, give you alerts. It'll give you QR check-in. That means that you, QR code that uh, your restaurants and pubs will have. You'll be able to scan that and that will automatically register with you, register you with the system. Uh, it'll give you a list of symptoms in case you're in any doubt at this stage what they are. Uh, it uh, will allow you to book a test if you want to. And it will help you self-isolate by giving you advice on how many days you've got to self-isolate and making sure you've got a countdown of that and so on. So that's absolutely wonderful. Now, as I've just said, of course, this was the original 
situation. They were comparing the NHSX was comparing the decentralized system that Apple and Google were developing with the UK government's centralized system. Uh, and they were really getting very excited about their centralized system because it was going to allow them all kinds of, of data collection, completely anonymous, of course, if you believe that. Uh, but unfortunately, their centralized app didn't work uh, because it simply drained the batteries of the mobile phones concerned. Um, so they've had to, uh, to, to basically cancel that idea uh, and go with uh, Apple and Google. Uh, and uh, so that isn't going to work out quite so well for them. But here's uh, what they're saying, that uh, this will work if you have a phone um, which has uh, Bluetooth Low Energy 4, uh, is Android Marshmallow or better, iOS 13.5 or better. But here's the problem. They've been screwed by the United States sanctions on China uh, because if you've got a Huawei uh, that's been bought in recent months, uh, that ain't going to work because, of course, Google is no longer supplying uh, Huawei with uh, the operating system. How unfortunate. Yes. So um, so I wonder how many people actually uh, will have access to this. Uh, probably, I think, 30% of people with iPhones uh, don't have uh, a version of iOS that will run it. I think it's less for Android. About 15% of people don't have uh, an operating system on which, and, and it'll never be updated. So they'll either have to buy a new phone or say, well, I'm not going to bother. Um, and, uh, and of course, that doesn't count uh, the people that don't have smartphones at all. Will it work on my Nokia banana? Uh, no, it won't. <sighs> sorry, sorry, Patrick, it won't. Oh, I know you're no. disappointed about that. You will not be able to scan QR codes. You'll not be able to take part. I've had that phone since the Matrix when I was, I was so, I mean, uh, it, yeah, it's I, really I, attached I it. to it. I, I get it. But uh, so but so contact tracing, of course, we'll move on to this and uh, it'll all be fully automated. Uh, uh, and, you know, what can we say about it? It's there. It's apparently working. The government's very excited about it. It's not mandated, though. And it's not mandated. And that's a very good point. So let's uh, just... Listen to uh, Boris. Well, this is a tweet that was pushed out by Sky News uh, with a little bit of uh, video attached. The app, Prime Minister. You didn't answer about that. It is true to say that you don't have to follow the recommendation. Yes, that's absolutely right. And... So, so that's all he said. That's absolutely right. You don't have to follow the advice in the app because, of course, there's no legal basis for that. However, what he went on to say in that little video clip was, of course, he is deploying the police to make sure you do follow the advice uh, on the app. So the question is, what are the police going to do? Are they going to become a lot more draconian about handing out fines uh, than they have been in the past? Uh, the last time uh, I looked, there was no prosecution under the coronavirus legislation that actually succeeded up, up to date. Mm. Um, so um, Perhaps, but but the mixed messages that are coming out of government, they, they just never end. You must follow the advice, but you don't have to follow the advice. Uh, you know, you're safe if you are at a pub until 10 p.m., but after 10 p.m., you're not safe anymore. It's, it is incredible. So the prosecution record's a bit like uh, underage children buying cigarettes, um, sort of in that sort of neighborhood, in that bracket, right? Like yes, absolutely. Two or three per year for the country or something like a that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Absolutely right. right. So, so let's uh, let's come on to Rishi Sunak then, because of course uh, the big news from this morning is that the Chancellor of the Exchequer, we're calling him the Chancellor from now on because he is not a Chancellor, he is cancelling uh, the economy, uh, but he is uh, cancelling it through some new support for people, uh, which will replace the furlough scheme. So, what did he have to say? 
uh, in his uh, live stream, uh, the resurgence of the virus and the measures we need to take in response pose a threat to our fragile economic recovery. And I just wondered, did he really mean that? Or is he saying we, the British government, pose a threat to our fragile economic recovery? I think that's a more likely scenario. The, the virus hasn't really got nothing to do with it. Uh, he went on to say, our approach to the next phase of, phase of support must be different to that which came before. So he's replacing the furlough scheme uh, and uh, he's replacing it with what's being called the job support scheme. And that's going to last for six months. It'll begin on the 1st of November. Uh, and basically employers will pay for the hours worked. Uh, and then the government, so this, this is people that are being brought back off the furlough scheme on a part-time basis mainly. So the employers will pay for the hours worked and then the government and the employer between them will cover two thirds of the lost wages. Um, so what does this mean in practical terms? It means that when the, go the government had been paying 80% of the monthly wage up to two and a half thousand pounds under the furlough scheme, uh, under the new scheme, the government will only be paying 22% uh, of uh, of the uh, salary, and there's a cap on that. I think I think it's 650, no, 697 pounds, 92 per month really? is what the cap was. So anyway, he went on to say this: we need to create new opportunities and allow the economy to move forward, and that means supporting people to be in viable jobs, which provide genuine security. And this is really key wow. uh, because he said. Uh, and I've said throughout this crisis, I cannot save every business. I cannot save every job. No chancellor could. Um, so he's absolutely effectively choosing which types of jobs he's going to support and which he isn't. Which ones are viable, quote, viable, and which are not. So the government's deciding what's viable and what's not. The government is now picking winners and losers. Uh, well, it's worse than that, Patrick, because, of course, he's using this word viable, but it's undefined. So what, what does he mean by that? And I'm going to make a suggestion in a second about what he means by viable, but this is not clear. What is a viable job? So um, this is the, uh, Before you go on, Mike, yes. I'm just going to say, and I'm not being, um, I'm not exaggerating this point at all. This is Soviet level command and control of the economy and the socioeconomic environment. When the government's that involved, in making decisions about what jobs are, you know, viable and worth saving, and which ones are going to be sort of cast aside to the wall. Yes, this is this is what sort of communist bloc countries did for many years. Uh, absolutely. Um, well, here's the Institute for Government, and uh, their headline is Rishi Sunak's shift in approach could place viable jobs at risk. Uh, and here's the key quote from this uh, from this article: The Chancellor's new scheme will, by design only save some jobs. So the question is, what? why would they do that? Uh, why would they do that? Well, we get a clue uh, from Boris. Um, here he is. Uh, and he is uh, speaking at the UN General Assembly today. He's taking part in a, uh, in a UN Climate Action Roundtable hosted by the UN Secretary General. Um, the uh, General Assembly taking place at the moment. And he's going to be saying today, the UK will lead by example, keeping the environment on the global agenda and serving as a launch pad for a global green industrial revolution. And this is what it's about, I believe. It's about the green industrial revolution. And we've got to remember, we'll be mentioning this in a little second, of course, many, many people, Patrick, asking, how is Sunak going to pay for all this uh, intervention that he's been uh, using over the last lot of months? Uh, and of course, the answer to that uh, comes from the Bank of England because they are printing money left, right and centre. So here's Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England. He left his job 
pretty much as COVID was hitting. Um, but if you remember in the months leading up to that, he was being very clear about the change that was necessary in the British economy. Uh, and he said this, at the core of the system now, these questions are being asked if you're on the right side or the wrong side. And if you're on the wrong side, what are you going to do about it? And he went on to say, companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt without question. Uh, he said there will be industry sectors, industries, sectors and firms that do very well during this process because it will be part of the solution. Uh, but there will also be ones that lag behind and they will be punished. And of course, what he was talking about was just as Boris is going to be talking about today at the General Assembly, the new green economy. And he was talking about credit being withdrawn from companies uh, that did not get uh, engaged on the new green economy and the, uh, the, the new changes that are coming along the road. So uh, this is what is driving Rishi Sunak and his uh, and motivating his decisions on which support he's going to give and which companies he considers viable. It's the ones that fit with the new green economy. The, the term Boris used there was, if I'm not mistaken, Mike, was green industrial revolution. That's correct? right. So that's a combination of the Green New Deal and the fourth industrial revolution. Absolutely. So the term that he's just drifted out is a new term that's an amalgamation of uh, the existing uh, World Economic Forum Fourth Industrial Revolution, which we've talked about before, and we've covered the work of uh, Corey Morningstar uh, as well yes. uh, on this program. Her blog uh, called The and Wrong Kind of Green is uh, a definitely a go-to spot for this topic. So that's a new term Boris has, uh, has rolled out there. So we might be seeing more of this term. I'm sure we will. Um, so uh, Manchester Evening News here uh, asking, Rishi Sunak asked how Britain will pay for job support schemes as bill continues to grow and the question is how big is the bill now well let's just have a look uh, because here's metro uh, uk's national debt hits record high after passing two trillion pounds so that's uh, over 100 percent of gdp uh, and of course we don't know what gdp that's based on last year's gdp figure we don't know what this year's gdp figure will be uh, because we haven't seen the fallout yet uh, what the final tally is going to be the final effect on GDP of the absolute economic devastation that this government and the Bank of England have uh, imposed. And the, the bulk of that, or a good portion of that, Mike, has been uh, accrued just in 2020, correct? Uh, in terms of all the... Uh, 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 yes, yes, the for sure. Spending, yes. out of control, uh, government intervention in the economy, supposedly because of COVID, we're told. It's all because of the virus. Yes, they had no choice. We we had no choice. We had to do it because of COVID. Now I've seen I've seen varying um, amounts uh, bandied about as to how much he's spending on this particular support scheme. Somewhere between one and a half billion and five billion is what he's spending on this, uh, and this is really what triggered these questions about how much or how are we going to pay this back. Um, nobody, everybody seems to be very concerned about how much he's spending on supporting jobs. Nobody seems yet to be very concerned. If you remember last week, we were talking about the 100 billion pound figure that he's talking about, or at least the government is talking about for uh, rolling out this rapid daily testing regime. Um, and uh, somehow the mainstream press doesn't worry too much about 100 billion on that, mm -hmm. but they're worried about 5 billion potentially being spent on this. 
there's a disconnect with reality here going on in the mainstream press. Oh, massively, massively, <laughs> because they associate that hundred billion for uh, mass testing. They they associate that with keeping people safe. Most people are sufficiently brainwashed to believe that uh, there, you know, there, there is no price tag uh, for the public safety, mm -hmm. and that we're all under threat because COVID is really lurking and ready to pounce uh, for a second wave. Therefore, let's just throw as much money as we can at it, and uh, hopefully that will solve the problem. No problem there. And then what? A measly five billion? Up to, let's say, the for, figures have been between one and a half and five. Yeah. For an economic rescue package, and all of a sudden the press is, oh, where are we going to find the money for this? Yeah. So we know where their priorities are. Absolutely. So uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And there are options to help us out there. That would be much appreciated and much needed. And thank you very much once again to all of you that have joined us. It's fantastic. And uh, uh, heads up here for uh, the latest David Ellis report, which is on the YouTube channel at the moment. Uh, this is David Ellis report paramilitaries and really uh, what he's talking about here is an extension of what we were talking about earlier in the week with uh, the rollout of the military uh, to support the police um, and really he's asking you know where has this policy come from and is it actually a British policy or is it something which is more international and he's establishing that it absolutely is but do uh, watch that and share it if you possibly can. Um, so Patrick where does that take us uh, students? Well, this, this is something that's, that's getting talked about in the press, but not in the right way. Um, so students, I believe, uh, with regards to COVID policies, lockdown, social distancing, I think students are really uh, a target of the state in this case, or the youth, let's say. This is a latest announcement. This was a front page of the I newspaper yesterday. Students get Christmas lockdown warnings. So the government, Mike, is basically saying that... Uh, you know, they're not safe coming home for Christmas and they need to be locked up uh, on campus over the Christmas break. So there's really threatening students nationwide about this. I mean, it's that's quite unbelievable. Mm. Why? To, to keep them safe uh, because the, the risk is deemed just too high for students to go home and spread COVID uh, to their older uh, parents and grandparents and family and so forth. N not, not to say that they even have it, or they even have an active infection. Mm. Uh, but so this is what the government is saying. I mean, this is just unbelievable. So the, the levels of state control are incredible mm. here. So I, I think this is a problem. And couple this, Mike, with what you were talking about in the last program about what they're doing to younger students, yep. making, going, putting them on, under house arrest for two, two weeks, two weeks yeah. uh, because somebody in their bubble or in their year tested positive with a PCR test. Mm. It's just uh, incredible. But uh, north of the border, Mike, uh, this is what they're saying. And this is Scotland University's websites here. They're talking about preventing the spread of coronaviruses in universities. New measures include making it clear to students that there must be no parties and no socializing outside of their households. So this is the Scottish government here. And uh, the, the ominous stare there of the dear leader North of the border, as you know, Mike, uh, Scotland is a one-party fascist state, according to what we're seeing in policies like this. There she is in her tart. Uh, what's she wearing there? This a type of a, a, a tartan muzzle of some kind. Some, something there, very fashionable. There, the politicians are very up with the fashion yeah. on the masks. That makes us all feel better, doesn't it? So, but how does the situation look in the United States? This is a piece uh, by the New York Times. 
college quarantine breakouts leave some at risk. So uh, pay attention to how the media is framing this type of story in America. Colleges are uh, basically block booking hotels, renting off-campus apartments in order to put students in who've tested positive for COVID. So to isolate them off campus in separate quarantine uh, facilities there. And apparently this is having a devastating effect psychologically on all these students. And this was the author of this piece by the New York Times, uh, Natasha Singer. And she's saying in one sense, Zoe's experience with Corona at the University of Alabama was typical. Her story illustrates how many schools are sending students with COVID-19 to special campus isolation dorms where they uh, largely leave the kids to fend for themselves. So the, the way that this story is being framed in the mainstream, I'm calling this mainstream COVID propaganda, Mike, is that they're, they're, they're describing the situation. And so often this is what the mainstream media does, this is how propaganda is done in the 21st century. They're saying, oh, isn't this horrible? And oh, the, the difficulty of the students, and we need to, to be there to, to help and support them. And they're not being supported enough by the universities. Not one of these mainstream journalists is questioning the basis of quarantining these students, abusing these students in the way that universities are. They're not, they're not questioning the provenance of the claims that they're somehow at some health risk, even if they tested positive uh, for, for coronavirus. And of course, these students are paying for the privilege of this treatment. Uh, paying handsomely and going into debt, you know, accruing $120,000, $150,000 worth of debt uh, in order to what? Be treated like basically uh, prisoners, like they're sort of infectious lepers mm. and uh, running little leper colonies off campus that the universities are doing. So, you know, the, the mainstream coverage is really shameful mm. on this. And so this is what's happening to students. We're seeing reports all across the country. It's, it's a, there's going to be a backlash, okay? It'll probably come from some parents uh, and from some students, but uh, we'll see we'll see how this looks here. So the Center for Disease Control, uh, this is updated infection fatality, survival rates for COVID-19. This was just published last week. This is very important. And we're talking about values here for pandemic planning scenarios. And this particular one is CDC scenario five, current best estimate. Look at the numbers. And I am so surprised this hasn't got more media coverage. Age group, infection fatality rate, survival rate. Let's look at this. So we've got the four age groups here, the last one being quite a wide berth, of course, 70 plus, but uh, zero to 19, 20 to 49, 50 to 69, and then 70 and older. Let's look at the infection fatality rate. Mike, look at those numbers. And this is from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So this is official figures. This is, this is from the Holy Church of COVID-19 in America, the CDC. 0 0.000000, four zeros, 3%. So we're talking about students before this, yeah. and the risk to students. Where is the risk to students? Where is the risk to students? There's a number of things in life that have a much higher death rate than COVID-19, and that, that's a very long list for those age groups, okay? Let, now look at the survival rate. Let's take this and reverse that. And then we'll say this is a 99.997% survival rate for the 19, that's a freshman, sophomore in college there. 20 to 49, 99.98, you know, pretty good, right? So where's the risk for the lower age groups? This is the Center for Disease Control. Right, where's the risk for the lecturers, in fact? 
Where's the risk for the lecturers? Look, even even look at 70 plus, okay? And mind you, before retirement, most of those lectures, even the older ones, let's say they're in their early 70s, uh, it's still a very high survival rate, mm. very low infection fatality rate uh, proportionally, Mike. So um, it's it's incredible. Um, right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to this this article then, Patrick. This is in the Huffington Post, uh, and it's from Chris York, and it says no, 90% of coronavirus tests are not false positives, and this is why. Now, of course, uh, we'll come on to Dominic Rabb in a second. The, Dominic Rabb's interview with Sky was doing the rounds in social media for obvious reasons. But is, is this one of those debunking articles, Mike? Th this is this is what he's aiming to do here. A mainstream is, is, sort is, of fact check debunk uh, article, it, that's right? Exactly it. Exactly that. So, so what he says here is, uh, what at first seems like an incredibly alarming statistic has been circulating on social media, promoted by a small and vocal group of journalists. At least 91, and the, the statistic that he's concerned about is that at least 91% of coronavirus tests in the UK are false positives. If true, the implications would be staggering. The actual scale of the pandemic in the UK is less than a tenth of what we thought, uh, and the government has just announced further lockdown restrictions based on faulty data. Uh, this claim has been seized upon by, among others, radio show host Julia Hartley Brewer, and he highlights her tweet here. Uh, in which she says, this is very important. Matt Hancock told, Matt Hancock told me on talk radio uh, that the false positive rate of COVID tests in the community is under 1%. Sounds good, doesn't it? Wrong. Uh, a false positive rate of 0.8% when the virus prevalence is so low means that at least 91% of COVID cases are false positives. Now, actually, when I did the calculation, I didn't uh, uh, come up with 91% because if you look at the total number of tests and you look at the total total number of uh, positive results uh, and you, you look at the uh, the specific sorry specificity of uh, of one percent uh, then you're probably looking at more like 50 percent but anyway the point is is well made by julia hartley brewer uh, but chris york doesn't like it um the other thing he goes on then he says uh, Back in July, uh, Professor Carl Hennigan, director of the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University, an outspoken critic of the current UK response pandemic, wrote a piece entitled, How Many COVID Diagnoses Are False Positives? Uh, it's on screen at the moment. It was published in The Spectator. Uh, and York says, uh, the article explains in a nutshell how tests cannot be 100% accurate, and therefore there's a certain margin of error for the tests. Uh, Hennigan is particularly interested in po false positives, those people who test positive for COVID-19 but actually aren't infected. Uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock has said the false positive rate is less than 1%, but Hennigan has argued that due to a bit of fluke, uh, a bit of a fluke involving some slightly complicated statistics, the proportion of positive tests that are false uh, could be as high as 50%. Uh, that was that was uh, what he was saying. And he also highlighted this blog post here from Lockdown Skeptics, Lies, Damned Lines and Health Statistics, The Deadly Danger of False Positives. Now, both that article by Hennigan and the, uh, the, the Lockdown Skeptics article here uh, from Dr. Michael Yeadon, uh, seem very well written, very well researched, as you would expect from people of this caliber. Uh, and uh, uh, so, but nonetheless, as far as Chris York's uh, concerned, they're not correct. So he then goes on to say, are they right? Uh, he says, but yes, but only in a statistical sense. <laughs> Applied to the real world, the conclusions don't stop, stand up and are wildly misleading. So then he goes on to make an argument, which is effectively a statistical argument. Uh, and the, so the criticism that he's made of the others uh, applies to himself, unfortunately, 
Uh, and uh, it's, well, we, what I will say, Patrick, is that when you read an article from uh, Carl Hennigan, for example, uh, you won't find anything in there that you could describe as disingenuous. Uh, in Chris York's article, we'll come on to it in a second, you very much can find things which could be described as disingenuous. So when we're accusing people of, uh, of uh, making uh, analyses based on a statistical sense, then perhaps you might take that into account when we consider who's being accurate. Also, the style of these fact-checking articles, is, there's a common thing you'll see. The headline of the debunking or the mainstream fact-checking article will sort of debunk or say that a claim is false. And then when you read further, they, in most of these articles, at some point, they'll admit that it's mostly true or partially true, or as Chris York's saying, yes, it's true, but only in a statistical sense. He puts in this, uh, this caveat there. And what he's attempting to do, which you'll show us now, is he's ref trying to reframe the argument uh, into a sort of statistical cul-de-sac. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so he goes on and he highlights uh, a, a nice little graphic provided by the British Medical Journal, which he has embedded in the, uh, in the article here. Um, and uh, well, he's saying that, as you can see there, that the number of false positives, that it, which is in the top right-hand block, uh, is very small compared to the number of positive tests. Um, but of course, uh, He's talking about sensitivity and specificity, and he does describe this in, in the article, this, which are technical terms uh, with respect to, to viral tests. Um, but there's a third item on the uh, on the uh, test there, on the or sorry, on the graphic there, which is about uh, the probability of somebody arriving for a test with the disease. So there's a third variable in this, which absolutely skews the results. So when that uh, that potential uh, precondition is set uh, to that looks like 80% there, mm -hmm. then obviously you end up with a very small uh, false positive result. Sure. Um, but the problem is that that's on the basis that people are arriving at test centers with symptoms and therefore you could make an assumption that, that they are likely to be arriving with a potential for a positive result at least. But as we've heard from Matt Hancock and others and in the mainstream press as well, Lots and lots of people, and we don't know exactly how many people, have been turning up to get a test with no symptoms at all. So in that case, that 80% figure that uh, in the original graphic uh, is wrong. So if we reduce it to 1%, say, just as a bit of an exercise. And pillar two. Uh, yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, if we reduce that to 1%, uh, so a very low pre-existing chance of somebody having, mm -hmm. uh, then in fact the false positive rate relative to the positive rate overall becomes a lot larger. So isn't that what pillar two testing is all about? Exactly. Right? And this isn't this what's driving the number of cases, quote cases, uh, with coronavirus and hence driving the call for second lockdown. It's creating a second wave that's not there and then it's pushing for a second lockdown, using it as a pretext for the policy. That, that's absolutely right. So then, of course, the next thing was, and Chris York mentioned this in his article, uh, Dominic Rabb comes along uh, to Sky News and says the challenge with testing for COVID-19 in airports, because he was being asked about the fact that people aren't being tested as they arrive back into the country. The challenge, he said, with testing for COVID-19 at airports is at the very high false positive rate. Uh, and he went on to say only 7% of tests will be successful in identifying those who have the virus. And Chris York's response to that uh, was that there's the prevalence of the virus among people in an airport will be relatively low 
unlike the prevalence of the virus among those seeking tests. But Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong, we are requiring people to quarantine as they arrive back into the UK from foreign countries because there's, a, according to the government, a very high risk that they're coming back with the disease. According to government policy. But Chris York says, no, that's not the case. It's mm -hmm. going to be relatively low. But then he goes on to say this. Uh, it's all irrelevant anyway, because hospital admissions due to coronavirus are at their highest levels since June. And this is where it really gets pretty disingenuous, mm -hmm. as we'll show in a second. And we showed on, on Wednesday, uh, but we'll show it in a second here. Uh, he went on to say, you do not go to hospital with a severe case of the false positives. But the question is, who is going to hospital? Uh, and we showed this graph uh, the other day, patients admitted to hospital, and, uh, and we made the point that actually, actually, if you look at the number of patients that are being admitted to hospital on a daily basis, these are daily uh, uh, bars on the, on the graph there, um, that compared to April, it's just unbelievably small. Now, this is the key point. There has been an uptick in the last um, few weeks. And he's not wrong to say that, that it's higher now than it was in June. But when you look at June there, uh, and you see that really there haven't been very many daily admissions since June, there still aren't very many daily admissions. It is higher than it was in June, but it's only a fraction higher and it's nothing compared to what it was in April. Yeah, and there, you see this a lot, Mike, people uh, punting out this 300% increase in hospitalization. So 300% from like, from you know, one, it's, yeah, yeah, you know, from 100 to you know 400 in, yeah. in a country of 60 million or something like this. So they they do throw out these big percentage rise. This is one thing you want to also always check when you see these big claims being made. Uh, absolutely. So so look, I, I want to. It's it's always hard to sort of put this stuff across, but I want to try to try to put this across. If we look at the situation today or any day in the last few weeks. Uh, according to the government, we've had on average, let's say, something around 4,000 cases uh, being identified each day. Now, of course, those aren't cases. Those are positive test results. But you put them in quotes there. I put it in quotes because that's what the government is saying, that those right. are cases. But in terms of hospitalizations, we're currently seeing 200 people going into hospital every day. So that's quite a disparity between the number of positive cases and the number of of those people that have positive cases that require hospitalization, it's very low. Now, if you compare that to the situation um, in April, uh, where they were d uh, discovering 2,000 cases on you know, something around 2,000, it's never, it was never exactly 2,000, but you were getting the same number of people ending up in hospital. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there was no testing regime in those days, so of course you're going to get that figure, but the point is, there was no, there was nobody that ended up with a positive test result that didn't require hospital treatment mm. uh, at at uh, more symptomatic patients. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, but yeah. but so on the basis that the government is claiming that the hospital that the, the virus sorry is no less deadly now than it was in April, mm. there's something else going on here. Uh, so that must mean um, that there is a better herd immunity. Absolutely. There's better immunity in the in the uh, in the population than Absolutely. there was in April. That's the only explanation. It, it's much less deadly now than it was in April. It's much less active, and there is more immunity uh, in the population. Mike, that's the only real sensible explanation. But I want to point out, uh, as you've nicely laid out there, uh, deconstructing 
uh, Chris York's false arguments with the Huffington Post UK, the one thing that he ignored was right here, Mike. Um, oh, if we go back to the previous previous slide, um, this is the main point here. Uh, he's, they're talking about cases and infections. Well, this is the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. Do we have that on Oh, screen? sorry, yeah. Uh, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, Oxford here. Um, this is from September 11th. Uh, this is an interesting article you might go and check out for yourself. When is COVID COVID? And of course, one of the authors here as well as Carl Hennigan, and he's talking about the PCR test. And so the, the whole basis of the statistics, the whole basis of the cases, the quote infections are based on PCR tests. Mm. Chris York uh, totally ignores this point, uh, runs away from it, doesn't mention it at all, because it, it really undermines his whole uh, argument here with regards to that we're, we're in a pandemic, basically. And this is from the article here from, from the Oxford group. We deduce that a reported, quote, case is most probably simply the result of a positive PCR test. The new guidance is meaningless unless it provides a clear threshold for the limits of detection. You're talking about the cycles that they're running on the PCR tests. So for many of those who turn up positive, there may be nothing recorded about any clinical symptoms. So you, you can't say a positive PCR test, A, is not a, it's not even a case in many cases, and it's not even an infection. Uh, a, a good metaphor for this would be, it's like finding a bit of hair if you're doing a DNA test at a crime scene, finding a bit of hair on the floor for a murder scene, saying that's the murder suspect when that hair was left there six months before the mm -hmm. murder took place. Very simple explanation. Yeah, because this is a key point because the PCR test may come back positive, but it may be showing remnants of RNA that were there three months ago, up to three months ago. You've, you may have had uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 at some point. It may or may not have developed any symptoms. You certainly probably, if you're having a test for it now, you probably haven't had COVID-19. Uh, but the point is that uh, that positive test does not demonstrate that you uh, are infectious currently, and it doesn't demonstrate that you're a case. And the fact that the hospitalizations are so low relative to the numbers of cases in inverted commas demonstrates that a positive test doesn't make a case. That's right. It doesn't make a case. And so we're not in a pandemic. A pandemic is when people are dying. Okay. Mm. Pandemic is when people are dropping left, right, and center. That's not happening. So th we can't use the term epidemic or pandemic right now. If there was an epidemic or a quote pandemic, uh, more likely it was sometime in early uh, 2020. Okay. No longer. And for the very reasons which we just explained. Absolutely. Right there. So uh, on to, uh, well, we'll just round off with this and uh, over to our dear leader here, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, he tweeted this out actually, uh, Mike, uh, just yesterday. Uh, it falls to each of us, and he's got the, we're going to have to recommend a surgical uh, procedure, procedure? Yeah. To, to remove his thumbs from his knuckles because somebody has super glued Boris Johnson's thumbs to his knuckles. Have you noticed this? Has anybody noticed this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But this, this was Tony Blair as well. This is, uh, this is but, absolutely Blair. But Boris has really got a problem with this, and he needs to seek medical attention. But anyway, he says, uh, it falls to each of us and every one of us to remember the basics 
Wash her hands. How can he wash his hands when they're fisted up like that? I don't know. Cover her faces. How can he put his mask on with his thumbs super glued to his knuckles? Observe social distancing and follow the rules. Say, then we can fight back against this virus, shelter our economy, and save many more lives. So this is Boris Johnson, but is it Boris Johnson really is actually, no, Boris is just, as Peter Hitchens said, just a stage name. So we're going to be calling him Alexander Al. Johnson. So what's Al been saying? Let's break down this statement here that he's made on Twitter. So let's just break it down here. Uh, what's Al talking about? This is a new segment that we're going to be introducing on the UK column. What's Al talking about? And so Al Johnson says, fight back against the virus. What is he talking about there, Mike? Do you know what he's talking about? I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath. How do you, are we fighting back? Is this a boxing match against COVID? COVID's pretty small, so apparently he's got the advantage there. Won't be able to hit him. So is this the virus fighting us, or is it the state fighting the people? This is the question. Boris says it's all COVID. Our, our pain and suffering is because of the virus. Nothing to do with government policies. Nothing to do with lockdown, shutting businesses down, shutting schools down, putting students under house arrest for two weeks because somebody in their year tested positive. So Al Johnson then says, we need to shelter the economy. So what is he talking about here, Mike? Shelter the economy. Put it on the shelf, Patrick. How do we, how do we shelter the economy? By shutting down? Yes. And restricting the economy? Absolutely. Is that what he means? Yes. So this is just looking like classic Orwellian doublespeak here. And uh, Al Johnson, again, save many more lives. Uh, by killing many more people. So how do you say, how's Al Johnson going to help us save many more well, lives? Well, they've demonstrated that in the lockdown. They killed people to save lives. Well, I guess what he means is by making the NHS a COVID-only service. Absolutely. So shutting down the NHS will supposedly save many more lives, apparently, according to Al. Mm -hmm. So And so the verdict here really is... Uh, Boris, quote, or Al, uh, is really losing it on this. No, I, mean, I, I can't agree with that, Patrick. I'm not sure that he had it in the first place. Well, there's an argument to be made there, of course. But so what's Al talking about? We'll be asking that question uh, going forward in the coming uh, news programs as well. Okay, excellent. Well, look, thank you very much, Patrick, for joining us today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, that's all we've got time for. Um, we will be back on Monday as usual at 1 p.m. I hope you have a great weekend, uh, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.